Chapter Two of Domestic Manners of the Americans by Francis Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, New Orleans Society, Creoles and Quadroons, Voyage up the Mississippi. On first touching the soil of a new land, of a new continent, of a new world, it is impossible not to feel considerable excitement and deep interest in almost every object that meets us. New Orleans presents very little that can gratify the eye of taste, but nevertheless there is much of novelty and interest for a newly arrived European. The large proportion of blacks seen in the streets, all labour being performed by them, the grace and beauty of the elegant quadroons, the occasional groups of wild and savage-looking Indians, the unwanted aspect of the vegetation, the huge and turbid river with its low and slimy shore, all help to afford that species of amusement which proceeds from looking at what we never saw before. The town has much the appearance of a French ville de province, and is, in fact, an old French colony taken from Spain by France. The names of the streets are French, and the language about equally French and English. The market is handsome and well supplied, all produce being conveyed by the river. We were much pleased by the chant with which the negro boatmen regulate and beguile their labour on the river. It consists but of very few notes, but they are sweetly harmonious, and the negro voice is almost always rich and powerful. By far the most agreeable hours I passed at New Orleans were those in which I explored with my children the forest near town. It was our first walk in the eternal forests of the western world, and we felt rather sublime and poetical. The trees, generally speaking, are much too close to be either large or well-grown, and moreover their growth is often stunted by a parasitical plant, for which I could learn no other name than Spanish moss. It hangs gracefully from the boughs, converting the outline of all the trees it hangs upon into that of weeping willows. The chief beauty of the forest in this region is from the luxuriant undergrowth of palmettos, which is decidedly the loveliest coloured and most graceful plant I know. The pawpaw, too, is a splendid shrub and in great abundance. We here for the first time saw the wild vine, which we afterwards found growing so profusely in every part of America, as naturally to suggest the idea that the natives ought to add wine to the numerous production of their plenty-teeming soil. The strong pendant festoons made safe and commodious swings, which some of our party enjoyed, despite the sublime temperament above mentioned. Notwithstanding it was midwinter when we were at New Orleans, the heat was much more than agreeable, and the attacks of the mosquitoes incessant and most tormenting. Yet I suspect that for a short time we would rather have endured it than not have seen oranges, green peas, and red pepper growing in the open air at Christmas. In one of our rambles we ventured to enter a garden whose bright orange hedge attracted our attention. Here we saw green peas fit for the table, and a fine crop of red pepper ripening in the sun. A young negress was employed on the steps of the house. That she was a slave made her an object of interest to us. She was the first slave we had ever spoken to, and I believe we all felt that we could hardly address her with sufficient gentleness. She little dreamed, poor girl, what deep sympathy she excited. She answered us civilly and gaily, and seemed amused at our fancying that there was something unusual in red pepper-pods. She gave us several of them, 
and I felt fearful lest a hard mistress might blame her for it. How very childish does ignorance make us, and how very ignorant we are upon almost every subject where hearsay evidence is all we can get. I left England with feelings so strongly opposed to slavery, that it was not without pain I witnessed its effects around me. At the sight of every negro man, woman, and child that passed, my fancy wove some little romance of misery as belonging to each of them. Since I have known more on the subject, and become better acquainted with their real situation in America, I have often smiled at recalling what I then felt. The first symptom of American equality that I perceived was my being introduced in form to a milliner. It was not at a boarding-house under the indistinct outline of Miss C., nor in the street through the veil of a fashionable toilette, but in the very penetralia of her temple, standing behind her counter, giving laws to ribbon and to wire, and ushering caps and bonnets into existence. She was an Englishwoman, and I was told that she possessed great intellectual endowments and much information. I really believe this was true. Her manner was easy and graceful, with a good deal of French tournure, and the gentleness with which her fine eyes and sweet voice directed the movements of a young female slave was really touching. The way, too, in which she blended her French talk of modes with her customers, and her English talk of metaphysics with her friends, had a pretty air of indifference in it, and gave her a superiority with both. I found with her the daughter of a judge, eminent, it was said, both for legal and literary ability, and I heard from many quarters, after I had left New Orleans, that the society of this lady was highly valued by all persons of talent. Yet were I, traveller-like, to stop here, and set it down as a national peculiarity, or republican custom, that milliners took the lead in the best society, I should greatly falsify facts. I do not remember the same thing happening to me again, and this is one instance among a thousand, of the impression every circumstance makes on entering a new country, and of the propensity, so irresistible, to class all things, however accidental, as national and peculiar. On the other hand, however, it is certain that if similar anomalies are unfrequent in America, they are nearly impossible elsewhere. In the shop of Miss C. I was introduced to Mr. McClure, a venerable personage of gentlemanlike appearance, who in the course of five minutes propounded as many axioms as ignorance is the only devil, man makes his own existence, and the like. He was of the New Harmony School, or rather, the New Harmony School was of him. He was a man of good fortune, a Scotchman, I believe, who, after living a tolerably gay life, had conceived high thoughts such as Lycurgus loved, who bade flog the little Spartans, and determined to benefit the species, and immortalize himself by founding a philosophical school at New Harmony. There was something in the hollow, square legislations of Mr. Owen that struck him as admirable, and he seems, as far as I can understand, to have intended aiding his views by a sort of incipient hollow-square drilling, teaching the young ideas of all he could catch, to shoot into parallelogramic form and order. This venerable philosopher, like all of his school that I ever heard of, loved better to originate lofty imaginings of faultless systems than to watch their application to practice. With much liberality he purchased and conveyed to the wilderness a very noble collection of books and scientific instruments, 
but not finding among men one whose views were liberal and enlarged as his own, he selected a woman to put into action the machine he had organized. As his acquaintance with this lady had been of long standing, and, as it was said, very intimate, he felt sure that no violation of his rules would have place under her sway. They would act together as one being. He was to perform the functions of the soul, and will everything, she those of the body, and perform everything. The principal feature of the scheme was, that, the first liberal outfit of the institution having been furnished by Mr. McClure, the expense of keeping it up should be defrayed by the profits arising from the labours of the pupils, male and female, which was to be performed at stated intervals of each day, in regular rotation, with learned study and scientific research. But unfortunately the soul of the system found the climate of Indiana uncongenial to its peculiar formation, and therefore took its flight to Mexico, leaving the body to perform the operations of both in whatever manner it liked best, and the body, being a French body, found no difficulty in setting actively to work without troubling the soul about it, and soon becoming conscious that the more simple was the machine, the more perfect were its operations, she threw out all that related to the intellectual part of the business, which, to do poor soul justice, it had laid great stress upon, and stirred herself as effectually as ever body did, to draw wealth from the thews and sinews of the youths they had collected. When last I heard of this philosophical establishment, she and a nephew son were said to be reaping a golden harvest, as many of the lads had been sent from a distance by indigent parents, for gratuitous education, and possessed no means of leaving it. Our stay in New Orleans was not long enough to permit our entering into society, but I was told that it contained two distinct sets of people, both celebrated in their way for their social meetings and elegant entertainments. The first of these is composed of Creole families, who are chiefly planters and merchants, with their wives and daughters. These meet together, eat together, and are very grand and aristocratic. Each of their balls is a little almax, and every portly dame of the set is as exclusive in her principles as the excluded but amiable quadroons, and such of the gentlemen of the former class as can by any means escape from the high places where pure creole blood swells the veins at the bare mention of any being tainted in the remotest degree with the negro stain. Of all the prejudices I have ever witnessed, this appears to me the most violent and the most inveterate. Quadroon girls, the acknowledged daughters of wealthy American or Creole fathers, educated with all of style and accomplishments which money can procure at New Orleans, and with all the decorum that care and affection can give, exquisitely beautiful, graceful, gentle, and amiable, these are not admitted, nay, are not on any terms admissible, into the society of the Creole families of Louisiana. They cannot marry, that is to say, no ceremony can render a union with them legal or binding, yet such is the powerful effect of their very peculiar grace, beauty, and sweetness of manner, that unfortunately they perpetually become the objects of choice and affection. If the Creole ladies have privilege to exercise the awful power of repulsion, the gentle quadroon has the sweet but dangerous vengeance of possessing that of attraction. 
The unions formed with this unfortunate race are said to be often lasting and happy, as far as any unions can be so, to which a certain degree of disgrace is attached. There is a French and an English theatre in the town, but we were too fresh from Europe to care much for either, or, indeed, for any other of the town delights of this city, and we soon became eager to commence our voyage up the Mississippi. Miss Wright, then less known, though the author of more than one clever volume, than she has since become, was the companion of our voyage from Europe, and it was my purpose to have passed some months with her and her sister at the estate she had purchased in Tennessee. This lady, since become so celebrated as the advocate of opinions that make millions shudder, and some half-score admire, was, at the time of my leaving England with her, dedicated to a pursuit widely different from her subsequent occupations. Instead of becoming a public orator in every town throughout America, she was about, as she said, to seclude herself for life in the deepest forests of the Western world, that her fortune, her time, and her talents might be exclusively devoted to aid the cause of the suffering Africans. Her first object was to show that nature had made no difference between blacks and whites, excepting in complexion, and this she expected to prove by giving an education perfectly equal to a class of black and white children. Could this fact be once fully established, she conceived that the negro cause would stand on firmer ground than it had yet done, and the degraded rank which they have ever held amongst civilized nations would be proved to be a gross injustice. This question of the mental equality or inequality between us and the negro race is one of great interest, and has certainly never yet been fairly tried, and I expected for my children and myself both pleasure and information from visiting her establishment and watching the success of her experiment. The innumerable steamboats, which are the stage-coaches and fly-wagons of this land of lakes and rivers, are totally unlike any I had seen in Europe, and greatly superior to them. The fabrics, which I think they most resemble in appearance, are the floating baths, les bains vigiers, at Paris. The annexed drawing will give a correct idea of their form. The room to which the double line of windows belongs is a very handsome apartment. Before each window a neat little cot is arranged, in such a manner as to give its drapery the air of a window-curtain. This room is called the gentleman's cabin, and their exclusive right to it is somewhat uncourteously insisted upon. The breakfast, dinner, and supper are laid in this apartment, and the lady passengers are permitted to take their meals there. On the 1st of January, 1828, we embarked on board the Belvedere, a large and handsome boat, though not the largest or handsomest of the many which displayed themselves along the wharves. But she was going to stop at Memphis, the point of the river nearest to Miss Wright's residence, and she was the first that departed after we had got through the custom-house and finished our sightseeing. We found the room destined for the use of the ladies dismal enough, as its only windows were below the stem gallery, but both this and the gentleman's cabin were handsomely fitted up, and the former well carpeted, but, oh, that carpet! I will not, I may not describe its condition. Indeed, it requires the pen of a swift to do it justice. 
let no one who wishes to receive agreeable impressions of american manners commence their travels in a mississippi steamboat for myself it is with all sincerity i declare that i would infinitely prefer sharing the apartment of a party of well-conditioned pigs to the being confined to its cabin i hardly know any annoyance so deeply repugnant to english feelings as the incessant remorseless spitting of americans i feel that i owe my readers an apology for the repeated use of this and several other odious words but i cannot avoid them without suffering the fidelity of description to escape me it is possible that in this phrase americans i may be too general the united states form a continent of almost distinct nations and i must now and always be understood to speak only of that portion of them which i have seen in conversing with americans i have constantly found that if i alluded to anything which they thought i considered as uncouth they would assure me it was local and not national the accidental peculiarity of a very small part and by no means a specimen of the whole that is because you know so little of america is a phrase i have listened to a thousand times and in nearly as many places it may be so and having made this concession i protest against the charge of injustice in relating what i have seen End of chapter 2